0: Well, good afternoon, church and friends and guests. It's good to see you all here with bells on and Christmas sweaters, too. A special welcome to all the faithful and the unfaithful who are gathered here to worship this afternoon. <laughs> special welcome to our college students who are home for Christmas time. Special welcome to uh, extended family members who might be joining us as visitors this afternoon special welcome to anyone who might be here for the first time in a really long time and even if you intend this to be the only time we are glad that you are here today i heard the story recently of a christmas shopper who was on trial for doing their christmas shopping early they stood before the judge and the judge said to the defendant what crime are you accused of and the, the defendant said, I'm accused of doing my Christmas shopping too early. And the judge said back to the defendant, well, that doesn't seem to me like a crime. How early were you shopping? And the defendant said, well, before the store was open. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is our second of three services, worship services, that we have today. And if you missed out on the first service this morning, boy, oh boy, did you ever miss out. That was the service in which we gave away a trip to the Bahamas. So, (laughs) sorry, I mean, just kidding, we actually didn't do that. But even if we did, this is the service, this is the service in which we get to worship Jesus. So, upgrade, right? That's what you're thinking. About 80 years ago, it was the great Christian influencer C.S. Lewis who said that Christmas is sometimes confusing because we celebrate three things and jam them all together in one. The first thing he said we celebrate at Christmas time is a popular holiday. We do it with Christmas lights and Christmas cookies, with Frosty the Snowman, and with phrases like season's greetings or happy holidays. The second thing that we celebrate at Christmas time. He calls the commercial racket. The commercial racket is when we make our Christmas list and check it twice, when we go shopping on Black Friday and Small Business Saturday and Cyber Monday, and it's about Santa Claus and the presents under the tree. The third thing, however, he says that we celebrate also at Christmas time is a religious festival, which is not so much about the food or the family or the presents, but it's all the more about God saving the world in Jesus' name. Now, those other things, they're not bad, of course. They're even fun. But the real celebration of Christmas is this religious news of God in the flesh of a baby born in Bethlehem. And so we begin our service this afternoon by lighting the Christ candle in our midst. And we're going to do so borrowing some of the very wonderful words of the prophet Isaiah And John, the author of a gospel. And together they said that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became human and moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Friends, today we get to celebrate Christ is born. Merry Christmas. Would you please stand? Please stand.
1: baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them.
2: wonders of his love, far as the curse is found. We hope tonight that you might encounter Jesus 2.0, the epitome of God's intentions for this world. It was a cold and dark morning. The cars filled the streets, even though the sun hadn't risen yet as they jettisoned their children to school and off to work. It was so routine that for a moment you almost forgot its peculiarity. The seasonal shift that had occurred, that ha- has occurred that causes darkness to fill so much of our lives. Two-thirds of our days, half the time are, we are awake, the sun is not shining. It is dark outside. Yes, we might be accustomed to it because it happens every single winter. This darkness that settles in, and yet it has the power, doesn't it, every once in a while to kind of knock us off kilter. The absence of, su- of sunlight affects us mentally, physically, and sometimes even spiritually. We know it even if we don't know the scientific reasons why. We need light. And on a deeper level, I think we need the light. You see, in the beginning, the universe was a dark and formless void of nothingness. Genesis 1 declares that into that, God said, Let there be light, and light was formed. Into chaos and disorder, light created order and life. Light 1.0, you might say. And then, many, many years later, in ancient Jerusalem, in a time when the people of God had wandered, they were under siege by other nations, and the leadership at that time was suspect at best, Isaiah prophesied of another light that was to come when he said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. We might call that light 2.0. And then in ancient uh, centuries later, the priest Zechariah had this angelic encounter with an angel that said that his wife, who was barren, was going to have a child. What? His disbelief and skepticism caused him to go mute, not to say a word until his child was born. And then after his child was born, he said this, because of God's mercy, the light of dawn will shine on us again to guide our way in the feet in the way of peace amidst chaos of the cosmos god spoke light into existence and brought order amidst hopelessness of war and unfaithfulness of people god's light would be a hope for the despairing amidst unbelief and skepticism god's light would bring understanding and peace Light has so many functions, doesn't it? But chiefly and most obviously, light reveals. Light allows us to see. Light makes vision and life itself possible. Not just physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. Light illuminates the broken parts of our world. The light of God shines on the chaos monsters of our world like evil and pain that we know all too well. Light reveals reality. But this Christmas, we don't just remember that light reveals, but also that light restores. You see, God's light is not only shed onto the broken parts and pain of this world, but the light of Christ has the power to reconcile and make whole, to restore what was broken, to heal what was sick. Jesus is light in the dark 2.0. Revealing and restoring this world. We see evidence in this nature. We see evidence of this in nature. Consider for just a moment with me a a tree, let's say. I have a number of trees in my yard, and one day I came out to find two of my four-year-old neighbor boys with a hammer just whacking away at the tree, doing their best Paul Bunyan, trying to knock over a tree that was about this work. A whole side of it was filled uh, with hammer marks. Bark was all over the place, sap dripping. All you could see was the bare wood. I thought for sure that tree would die. But the light from the sun caused that tree not only to grow, but to scab over with new bark and, and cause that tree to survive. Or, or take, for example, our, our, our very bodies. You, we know that we need vitamin D to help process the calcium that our body needs to build or to, to, to have healthy bones and teeth. Well, studies have shown that sun-stimulated vitamin D also helps prevent disease, it helps potentially extend our lives, And, in fact, the light from the sun can even heal us from diseases and ailments that we have. In nature, light not only reveals brokenness, but it also heals. We celebrate at Christmas because God not only revealed the brokenness of this world in Jesus, but has entered in to do something about it and do something affirmative. You see, the light of Christ brings new light into the pain and suffering of our world. And you, Fellowship Church, have testified to that over the years. As John would say, you have been a light in the darkness, light 2.0 that shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it, as the gospel writer John would say. Like, for instance, when a woman who's been trapped in an abusive relationship courageously breaks free and allows the healing work of Christ to set them on a new path of restoration and wholeness, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. That, when a college student addicted to substances, yearning for his next hit, his next escape, discovers the healing power of Christian community and commits their life to Christ, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. Or when a family member ostracized for their beliefs, lifestyle, or even their convictions is spurred by the grace that they have received to courageously return home and remain connected with a family that they're not even sure they know anymore, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. Or when a church, challenged by the reality of lonely kids in their schools and food insecurity in their community, sacrificially gives of their time and their money, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. Or when a parent accustomed to the regular pour of a few too many drinks night after night, receives their child's confrontation and takes their first step into becoming sober, that's the light shining in the darkness and the darkness not being able to overcome it. This Christmas, we celebrate Light in the Dark 2.0, Jesus, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, whose light reveals and restores our hearts, and someday this whole world over. What might it look like for you this Christmas to allow the light of Christ to reveal and restore you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
3: came upon them
0: Lights, please. and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, fear not.
1: I'm so thankful for our tech team. (laughs) Would you stand and let's sing together?
0: My favorite line in all the Christmas carols is a line that we've actually already sung today. It comes from the song, Joy to the World. The line speaks of Jesus and it says, he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. I love that line to put it on our Christmas card again this year and again because we've done it before. It's the good news of Christmas time. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. On that point, about the blessings and against the curse, I want to share a little bit today about Salvation History 2.0. If you take up your Bible and read it from start to finish, I think that you'll find as you're reading there are some themes that seem to run throughout, in particular some characters, some people and some places that seem to matter always. These people and places end up becoming for us representative characters and representative locations in the story of our lives and the story of the whole wide world. One of the first and most obvious ones is Adam. Adam is the first human being. And whether literal or figurative, Adam and his wife Eve, unfortunately, they're remembered not for what they did good. They're remembered for what they did bad. (laughs) God gave them everything, and everything that God gave them was indeed good. God gave them only one rule, not to take the forbidden fruit. And sure enough, they go and take the forbidden fruit. The one thing they were not supposed to do, that is what they did. It's like, Adam, you had one job. Man, come on. As the story goes, Adam fell into sin, and all of humanity fell after him, kind of like one domino that knocks down all the rest of them, Theologians call it original sin, which leads to the undisrupted transmission of sin from one generation to the next until the Bible finally says that there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? In the New Testament, it really is more of the same. That's what Adam is remembered for. He is the one who brought into this world guilt and shame, sin and death. But even more so, and this is the good news of Christmas, Jesus is presented as a second Adam. And Jesus is like Adam, equal in influence, affecting absolutely everything, but also opposite in style, because he brings forth good rather than bad. Jesus is like Adam 2.0. And all that Adam did wrong, Jesus did right. So much so that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, stories like those say that in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Celebration. It's a celebration of Salvation History 2.0. After Adam comes Moses. Moses is remembered as the great liberator of God's people. Moses goes to all the great sin powers of the world, whether that's my sins or your sins or someone else's sins. He goes to the places where people are in captivity in Egypt, another one of those representative places. And Moses says on God's behalf, let my people go. And friends, Jesus is like Moses, born into this world at Christmas time, and he will grow up and he will go to all the sin powers of this world. Against sin and death, guilt and shame, Jesus will be the one who says, Let my people go. He is Moses 2.0, another part of salvation history 2.0. I'll offer just one more example the Promised Land 2.0. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find in it that. God is often making promises to his people, and those promises often include land, and that land is the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a wonderful place. They remember it as their hope of heaven. It's their happily ever after place. It's their home sweet home, whether they're there or not. Now, That land, the promised land, has ended up being the most highly desired and hotly disputed place on all of planet Earth, hasn't it? Just check the news, even still today. But in Jesus, the promise of a promised land is not lost. It's made all the better. It's turned up to 11, if you will. In Jesus, the promised land becomes God's kingdom come, an unshakable kingdom that's available now in Jesus' name in hearts and homes and increasingly so throughout our neighborhoods and eventually across all the nations until there's not one square inch left out of God's new promised land, the kingdom come. It's Salvation History 2.0. Today you may be noticing already that we're talking about Christmas over and against the chaos monsters of this world that God so dearly loves. And salvation history really is the work of God to make right whatever is wrong in the world and in us. And so Christmas happens in order to push back darkness and bring forth light. Christmas happens in order to offer to us companionship and fellowship where there might otherwise only be loneliness or alienation, Christmas happens to address head-on all the guilt and shame, all the sin and death that are otherwise ruining our lives. Against those chaos monsters of loneliness and darkness, of sin and shame and guilt and death, he came, Jesus. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So friends, if you, this Christmas, are especially perhaps wrestling with feelings of guilt, guilt that says, I've done bad, or shame, shame that says, I am bad. If you are wrestling with those things, or maybe if you are in captivity right now to someone or to something, and you feel like you just don't belong, you don't belong in God's kingdom come, in God's promised land. Let me remind you, friends, that Christmas really is Salvation History 2.0, and God is still at work doing the things he's been doing since the beginning. He is working to make right whatever is wrong in us and in the world. And Jesus is the second Adam, the second Moses, and the bringer of a better promised land. The Christ child was born into a dark and messy world, so that the final word is not, I've done bad so that the final word is not, I am bad. The final word is Jesus. And he came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Thanks be to God. Amen. I
1: invite you to stand again with us. Let's sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Awe. Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transforms our current understanding of the world. Have you ever experienced awe according to that definition? Being in the presence of something vast and basically having your mind blown? But what does awe have to do with Christmas? Those who study awe have noticed that when we are busy and preoccupied, we miss the experience of awe. And when we're overfamiliar with something, we lose the curiosity that leads to awe. I don't know about you, but often for me, Christmas time is both busy and preoccupied. And though many of us have rich traditions and meaningful practices around Christmas, if we're honest, we've kind of gotten used to it all. And maybe we've lost the experience of wonder and awe. Now though we can't manufacture feelings of awe, we can get curious, ask questions, take a fresh look, and cultivate wonder with the eyes of a child, which leads to a greater experience of awe, and most importantly, a greater experience of our God, and knowing that we are part of a much bigger and unified whole. So let's take a moment to pause and get curious, shall we? Let's slow down together and open ourselves to wonder. If this was the first time you were hearing the Christmas story, and maybe it is, or the first time you were singing these Christmas carols with others, what parts would make you curious? What questions would you ask? What do you, even tonight, wonder about? If you knew that, for whatever reason, this was the last time you would hear the Christmas story, or sing these Christmas carols, what parts would you savor and treasure? What would you notice? What would you hold on to and ponder in your heart? Cultivating wonder and experiencing awe are sacred, holy acts. And if it seems just a bit far out of reach to you tonight, in the midst of the hustle and bustle of the season and the familiarity of it all, Perhaps we can simply ask God, what do you want me to see with fresh eyes this Christmas season? And that's a prayer I believe God loves to answer.
3: Did you know
1: I invite you to join us in prayer in your hearts and with your eyes open there will be visuals on the screen for you to engage in this prayer there will be music underneath and moments of silence for you to make the prayer your own let's pray together
2: the stars in orbit please guide our path
4: justly empower us to do right.
0: O root of Jesse amidst our dead and barren lives bring forth surprising new life.
1: O key of David, unlock, unleash, unbind all who are oppressed and yearn for freedom.
2: O radiant dawn, you awake the earth with beauty. Astonish us with your goodness and your justice.
4: O king of nations, where war and divisions destroy, fashion real unity and peace.
0: O Emmanuel, amidst our isolation and independence, come live with us in love until we learn to love.
1: For the sake of your name and the world you so love, amen.
4: Where have you been overwhelmed by God's glorious presence? Perhaps while overlooking Lake Superior, or maybe while meditating in a glorious cathedral halfway around the world, or perhaps even at a summit of a mountain in one of our glorious, stunning national parks. Wherever it may have been, John's vision of a renewed heaven and earth surely surpasses them all. In Revelation 21, John tells us that there God will make his dwelling place amongst mere mortals, and he will dwell with his people, and they with him. In the Greek, God makes a skene, or a tabernacle, or a hut, or a tent amongst human beings, and he skenoses, or tabernacles, with them. Said in Hallmark Channel E's, God makes a home among us, and he chooses to nest with us. John's vision describes the glorious age to come, one in which mere muggles like you and me are welcomed into everlasting fellowship with God and God's people. John borrows this image of God tabernacling among his people from the Old Testament traditions. There in the tabernacle, we encounter the 1.0 version of interacting with God's presence God covenants to make his dwelling amongst his people, it says in Leviticus 26. My soul, God says to them, will not abhor you, he promises us. And when the people make a sanctuary, God promises to dwell with them there, it says in Exodus 25. And sure enough, when Moses finishes building the tabernacle, the Lord tabernacled there, it says in Exodus 26. And when Solomon finished building the temple, the ultimate tabernacle, the glory of the Lord tabernacled there too, it says in 2 Chronicles 7. God tabernacles with the people in the tabernacle, so much so that when the prophet Ezekiel um, envisions a new Jerusalem after the first one had been destroyed, he includes a blueprint, a very detailed blueprint for a temple in which God's presence would dwell with his people yet again. And so naturally, in Revelation 21, when John offers his own rather detailed vision of the New Jerusalem, includes he includes a glorious Gothic cathedral fit with pipe organ and lots of chubby baby fi- fixtures throughout. And yet, John says, there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. There is no temple. The original hearers would have fallen off their chairs hearing this, which would have been hard to do because they were recliners. <laughs> Why is there no temple? Because the very presence of the Lord, John says, is itself the temple. It's almost like John's vision of the glorious age to come isn't just a calling forth of our imagination to a time where God dwells amongst his people, but also a call back to the time before um, when everything began, the beginning of creation. In the beginning, there was no tabernacle, no temple, no sanctuary, no beautiful Gothic cathedrals with pipe organs and little chubby baby fixtures throughout. Because all of creation was God's tabernacle. Every square inch where his presence and glory dwelt. And yet, there's something striking for us to notice. Because throughout the entire Old Testament, repeatedly, the presence of God is described as so thick, so weighty, so heavy, that everyone is compelled to stop what they're doing and sometimes even cower in fear for terror of death. And yet in the beginning, original humanity lived And worked and ate and napped and played flag football in the presence of God. In the beginning, the glorious presence of God was more like a weighted blanket for the soul. It brought comfort and peace and joy rather than terror or fear of death. God's glorious presence enlivened and animated and energized us rather than incapacitated us. It's almost like our souls were made for joyful communion with the everlasting God, quite literally fit for such a spiritual encounter, uh, for the spiritual altitude of such an encounter with him. But something broke it. Human sin and brokenness and shame quite literally drove us out from the very presence of God, plunging us into the depths of the low, flat, monotonous land below spiritual sea level. The ancients called this the exile, Historically, the exile refers to the deportation of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria and the deportation of the southern kingdom by Judah, of Judah by Babylon. To be exiled was to be quite literally carried out from your home and your land and your temple and your culture and your language and your customs. But exile is not just an historical reality. It's also a way of describing a spiritual reality. Spiritually, exile is to no longer feel at home in God's glorious presence. According to data trends, exile is increasingly now what it feels like to be human. Only we moderns call it loneliness, which sometimes feels like being alone even in a room full of people we know. I think our current plight of loneliness helps us to understand what spiritual exile feels like. It's like an existential loneliness in which we flee further and further away from God's glory. And as a result, as a result of no longer feeling at home in God's glory, we no longer know how to connect with God or one another or even ourselves. There are a lot of reasons why we might no longer feel at home in God's glorious presence, perhaps sin patterns that slowly steal our allegiance and our energy and attention, perhaps the sins of a church or even church leaders who were supposed to be sanctuary for us. Perhaps boredom or busyness or distraction that impede encounter with God. Perhaps even the shame that tells us that we won't ever be welcomed back into God's glorious presence. It's not surprising then that as faith diminishes, as church membership decreases, loneliness is on the rise. Our souls hunger, they pant, they thirst, they cry out for fellowship with God, the God who has always dared even in the face of sin and death and darkness, to call you and I his friends. And he did so in the gentlest of ways, concealing his glory lest we shrink back in, from him in fear and terror, like an infant cooing in his mother's arms amidst the darkest, most oppressive of nights. So gentle and mild that even dirty, smelly shepherds could hold him and sing to him. So meek that even sinners and pagans could bow before him in worship. So kind that even enemies, even rebellious runaways like us could become his very best friends. In the midst of the tears and the pain and the struggle and the chaos of our lives, of our worlds, and even of our souls, our God dared to move into our pretty sketchy neighborhood and make his home with us. And in doing so, to slowly heal our souls so that we could encounter his glorious presence without fear and terror and instead with joy and wonder and excitement. And God says to us, in doing so, what he said to his people thousands of years ago, I will make my dwelling among you and I will not abhor you. I am not mad at you. I am your God and you are my people which is why our souls should leap for joy upon hearing the good news that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.
3: to
0: Friends, at Fellowship, we have a wonderful tradition, a beloved habit of designating our Christmas offering to one, as a gift to one of our mission partners. And this year, our mission crew has identified two recipients, one local and one global. Our global effort run through our denomination, the Reformed Church in America, is an effort to supply basic needs to people who have been displaced into southern Lebanon by conflicts in the Middle East. An RCA-trained pastor of the National Evangelical Church in Beirut is serving to coordinate these basic needs for thousands of people who have been uprooted by the violence that is happening in that place. And as a church, we yearn to care for those around the world who are on the very edge of survival. Our local effort is to support campus ministries at Grand Valley State University. This is a long-standing mission partner birthed through the efforts, a joint effort of the RCA and the CRC, Sister Denominations, planted right in the heart of the campus of Grand Valley State University. They are ministering this year to their largest student population to date, and yet they also had to cut back their staffing by 10% uh, because of some funding shortages. And so as a church, we are eager to help them reach the students of GVSU with the good news of God's love for us in Christ. All of the offerings received through these red envelopes available on your way in or designated online uh, to our Christmas Eve offering will go to these two places and we're eager and joyful to do so together this Christmas. In just a minute... Come on up. You can, you can come on up. <laughs> yep. We're going to be singing the uh, Hallelujah Chorus. And so uh, we'll sing a song before that. But while we're singing the song before, you are invited to come forward, get one of these from Pastor Nate and Tierra, and uh, join in the choir to sing the Hallelujah Chorus Fellowship. I dare you to sing this bravely and boldly. It's wonderful. But first, we're going to stand and sing. Sing the song, Sing We Now of Christmas. And again, that's your chance to come forward and join the choir. Wonderful. Friends, you may be seated just a minute, and you all can make your way back to your seats. I've got a few instructions. You may remember at the beginning of our service, we lit the Christ candle, and we recognized that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the darkness cannot snuff him out. Now, at the end of the service, we get to celebrate that Jesus also eventually turned back to his own disciples, and he said to them, you, you, You are my disciples, and I give you the light, and you are to go and take that light into the world. Take this light and let it light up not only your own lives, but share it with others, that it lights up your entire life world. When we use our time and our talents and our treasures, when we give like we do for the offering we just talked about, or go out and bless our neighbors and bless God's world, we are letting our light shine so much so that they might see our good deeds and turn back and praise God our Father in heaven And so just in a minute We're going to take the Christ light And pass it along to one another But before we do that There's a few words from the fire marshal Okay So here's the instructions If you have a candle that is lit, you hold it vertical. And if you're lighting, you tip yours into the lit candle and then go and repeat. So the lit candle stays vertical. We're supposed to stay in place. Once our candles are lit, stand still. All the other important things. We'll sing a song together once we have all of our candles lit. And then even at the end, we will extinguish them together. So keep it going until we blow them out together at the end. We can't leave the place with the candles lit, which is terrible theology But the fire marshal's a stickler, okay? So those are the rules. <laughs> Friends, this really is a truly Christmas act. So receive the light of Christ and share the light of Christ as we do so from the Christ candle. Would you
1: stand? I invite you to stand.
0: Friends, you are beautiful like this. I invite you to take a moment and look straight at your candle and maybe consider tonight, as we've talked, these chaos monsters that might be ruining your Christmas or your life this year, whether that's darkness or loneliness or sin or guilt or shame or even death. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and nothing can snuff that out. If you would like to respond to him tonight, I invite you to do so and to tell someone afterwards. He is the light of the world. Merry Christmas, friends. Now we have... Yeah, I, mean, I forget to let you do that. Merry Christmas, friends. Merry Christmas. We have to snuff these out. Let's do it together.